Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfcforyou.org. Now let's get going. Hello, everybody. This is Pastor Scott coming to you on the Upper Room. And this evening, we're going to be talking a little bit about some things that I'm learning in First Peter. And I wanted to take a little bit of time uh, just to kind of go over some of this stuff and, and one particular aspect of it. But first, I'd like to remind our listeners that we have another podcast out there called bfc for You Reaching the World, which is the Sunday Messages. And also, if you would do a big favor for us and on your podcasting app, leave a rating or a review, depending on what it allows you to do. We really appreciate that. It helps with the, algor- with the algorithm and allows us to get this out to a wider audience. Tell your friends. Let people know about the podcast if you find any value in it. We thank you for your support. One of the things I've been doing over the last week or so is just reading through the epistle of 1 Peter each morning. Uh, as kind of my Bible time and and time of prayer, and just trying to get sort of the big picture, kind of the the flow of the epistle, kind of how it you know moves from subject to subject, and see if there is anything in there in just the normal reading of of the letter that I can pick up that might be more like what the early hearers of the letter would have experienced uh, when they received it. There's some really good stuff in there, and I think it'll end up being. I'll put into some Sunday messages in the future, but tonight I wanted to deal specifically with the issue of our relationships to authority, and this is one of those areas that Christians differ pretty significantly on. And uh, the reason I say that is, is that you know we live in a in a free country where everybody has their own opinion, and as Americans, we definitely express our opinions. And, uh, and so this idea of submission to authority is a little bit foreign to most of us. Uh, we don't like the idea of authorities over us, people ruling over us, but as Christians, as the people of God, we know that there are hierarchies and there are authorities out there. And then that as believers, we uh, need to obey these authorities. So let me go ahead and read the passage out of first Peter that I'm talking about here. First Peter chapter two Uh, beginning, really kind of beginning with verse 11. So let me back up a little bit to verse 11 and start from there. Normally, you would start with verse 13 on this, but uh, let's back up to give it a little context. Uh, Starting with verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees good days, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him.
So that was 1 Peter 2.11 through chapter 3, verse 22, and there's quite a bit there, but you see the relationships, the dynamics that are being discussed there, and how there is a, there is a hierarchy, if you will, of authority. We see that in here in both the marriage relationship and civil authority, and uh, even in um, servant and master. So, and this is very similar to other passages. There's passages in Ephesians that talk about the same thing from the Apostle Paul. Um, the other one, kind of like this, talking about uh, this submission to authority, uh, especially to human institutions. Uh, and I like how it says in verse 13, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So one of the things we need to do with our hermeneutic is we need to look at who the author was, who he was writing this to, and then also what were the, the conditions at the time, what was going on at the time. And at this time, of course, Rome was in charge of everything, and the emperor reigned supreme, and the governors had authority uh, to do pretty much everything they'd been commissioned to do by the emperor. And so it wasn't like our country where we have a system of laws and judges and whatnot to, you know, to hear a case. If, if you were deemed worthy of punishment or death by the local governor, that's just what happened. And so in that kind of a situation where you as a citizen really didn't have much in the way of a voice in your government, unless you were a, a Roman citizen, which a lot of the Jews uh, in Israel were not, you really had no voice, and so there was nothing you could do legally through the system to be able to plead your case or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there were some mechanisms there, especially if you had money, uh, where maybe you could avoid punishment for doing wrong. But I think the basic idea here is is that under that particular system of government, you know, your best bet was to just be a good citizen and keep your head low, right? Don't do anything that would bring attention to yourself, especially don't do anything criminal um, that would bring attention to you. Because not only did it affect you, it also affected other Christians, right? So people who uh, they associate you with, with believers of that day, and then they begin to think that all believers are criminals. So there's another passage that's probably even a little more famous that I want to kind of take a look at uh, real quick, and it's uh, Romans chapter 13. And this is the one that really tends to get people wound up. Uh, starting with verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pretty straight and clear, right? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been in- instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And that's that's a passage that gets a lot of Christians, especially American Christians, Western Christians, riled up. Because <laughs> we've spent a lot of time in our history trying to do away with this system of kings and monarchs and go to a more representative type of government where the people who are in charge over us are people that we've elected and put there. And so there is a pretty major shift in, in kind of the form of government. But 
I think the principle is still the same. Once those people are there that you've put in place, we have an obligation as Christians to be good citizens. And I think that's really kind of what it boils down to. And what got me thinking about this and the reason I wanted to talk about it today was uh, last Sunday, Pastor Bob gave a message in Ephesians talking about the unity within the body of Christ and, and how it's not just an individual salvation that you have, but it's a shared salvation that we're all partaking of as the body of Christ and that our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're commanded to love them as God loved us. And so there's this whole idea of one anotherness. So one of the things that Bob talked about in his message was this whole idea of God's interest, that God did all these things, put all this together, created the church, created this this body of, of Christ so that for his interests, right, ultimately for his glory. And so it's not necessarily about us, but the flip side of that is what are man's interests, right? We know what God's, God's interests are. His interests are the revealing of all these things and this whole mystery to the heavenly, heavenly authorities, right? And uh, showing his, his grace, his mercy, his power uh, to these heavenly authorities through the mystery of the church. But what, what is man's interest in all this? And I think it's pretty clear to see that sinful man, man that has not partaken of the gospel, his only interest is in power and control. And so knowing that, it sets up a dynamic where how do we as Christians in a world today of representative government, how are we to relate to the authorities placed over us, even if they were placed by us, right, through this process of voting? Well, we had some interesting conversations a few weeks ago when the Versity Conference was here, and I got a chance and... uh, Others of us in the leadership got a chance to talk with the speakers of the conference, and it was interesting to kind of hear the different takes on some of this. And one of the conference speakers in particular was real adamant that um, Christians really need to step up and fight, legally fight, but fight and get after the government when it's doing wrong. And as an example, was applauding the churches that had decided to stay stay open in California when the governor had shut them down because of the pandemic, and justifying that saying that the governor was out of the bounds of the authority of the law, that he was breaking the law by doing that, that we are protected by religious freedom in the Constitution, and therefore, you know, no one can, can shut down uh, worship in a church. And different states really wrestled with this, and some governors came back and said, yeah, I don't have the authority to shut down a church. If a church wants to meet, it can meet. Other governors took a more tight control and said, no, uh, this is a pandemic. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a particular circumstance, and therefore I have the authority to shut things down, and, including the church. So there, it, was a, it was a big controversy back and forth, and Christians weren't even really sure where they, where they stood on, on this issue. Uh, to be honest, my thought is, is I don't have an issue with a church working within the bounds of, of the law or of the system as long as they're willing to accept the consequences of that, right? And we see that exampled by both Paul and some of the other apostles who found themselves in prison for continuing to preach the gospel of Christ, even though they had been warned and told not to by civil authorities. So they did it anyway, 
And because they did it, they found themselves in prison and they accepted that. You know, this that was the cost of doing what they felt like God wanted them to do. And so if you're willing to accept the, co- the consequences, accept the cost to do what you perceive to be the right thing, the thing God has called you or wants you to do, then there's, there's nothing wrong in that. Uh, you've done no wrong. But in this passage in, in Romans and also in 1 Peter, the illusion, what they're alluding to there is criminal activity. You know, if you're, if you're being a good citizen, you're, you're paying your taxes, you're doing what's right, you're seeking virtue and everything, then you should have no problem with the civil authorities. Um, they shouldn't be interested in you because you're the kind of citizen they want. So I had a few thoughts here as I was kind of going over this and thinking about it. So in the body of Christ, we can practice sort of a a type of collectivism because individually we're each called to walk with the Lord, walk in his spirit, obey his commandments, and do all this in love made possible by the filling of the spirit and creation of the new man, right? We have the spirit within us. We've we've accepted the gospel and the spirit has entered into us. And so we have the capability of living this sort of altruistic lifestyle within the body of the church. Um, And I I called it collectivism in this, because if you look at what the early church was doing, especially like in the book of Acts, what they were doing was, was basically an early form of communal living. You know, they were coming together, they were sharing everything they had, they were taking care of each other's needs and, uh, and all was good. But that's, going against really the born with nature that we have uh, of sin. And we need to recognize that as believers. You know, unbelievers do not have the spirit, and therefore they operate from the flesh or their sin nature. They might admire altruism, but are never really able to fully realize it. And even as Christians, we struggle to fully live as Christ, right? I mean, we want to be virtuous and do the altruistic thing, but we understand that that's not something that's within our normal nature, right? We really have to tap into walking with the Lord and walking in his spirit in order to be able to live that way. So as Christians, we need to be careful not to impose precepts of the church onto a secular society. Religious faith has a place in influencing society and government, and Christians should be involved at every level. However, they should always recognize that the unity we have in Christ can't be replicated in society and government by unbelievers or those of other faiths, right? This is something unique to Christianity, something unique to us. We do so at our own peril as the sinful nature rebels against the things of God. And I think we've seen that with the sort of general societal attitude of those, you know, crazy right-wing Christians, right? More so back in the 80s and 90s, pretty much the church has shut up since then, and you don't really see church people openly advocating that the government should do this or that. I mean, there's a few out there still, but nothing like it was in the 80s and 90s. The Republican Party actively recruited the religious right as a voting bloc. They don't do that anymore. And so we, in that sort of instance or space, we've kind of lost our, our influence. So what should be our goal for government, right? Well, our goal for government should be limited involvement and protection of individual liberty, right? Whereas the church can have this sort of communal kind of collectivist sort of mentality and how we operate as a church uh, within the bounds of the church. Um, when it goes out to the general government, general society, we need to be looking more towards the protection of individual liberties and limited 
limited government, limited involvement by the government, you know, because government is about laws, regulations, and compliance, and they're meaningless without the ability to enforce them. So therefore, government has the power of force to compel you to obey. And that's the key right there. Government can lock you up and throw away the key. Government can have you executed if they feel that what you've done is, is heinous enough. We need to be very careful on how we vote so that our representatives know we want freedom to live our lives pursuing virtue, right? Looking back at that passage in First Peter, you know, the, the reason we have this freedom in Christ is to pursue holy living, to pursue virtue, to pursue goodness. We don't want to confuse liberty with uh, libertinism or licentiousness, right? That idea that you can just do whatever you want. Uh, that's not living as Christ. So and we should have nothing to fear unless our motives are selfish. So if, if we get involved in government, and I encourage Christians to be involved in every level of government, everything from your local school board all the way up to the president of the United States, Christians need to be involved in all of those areas of civil government. Um, not not to say, thus saith the Lord necessarily, but to make sure that those virtuous motives are being representative being represented and being pushed into the laws that are created, the regulations that are made and the things that are enforced. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, as much as possible that the things that we're doing in civil government are things that represent goodness, represent virtue, right? We don't want the government creating laws that are evil. And if, if Christians aren't participating, uh, you're going to get laws that condone evil. And so, you know, and I can think of one right off the top of my head, abortion. Uh, that's a big one. Abortion is the killing of a person. And uh, a lot of people want to say, no, it's just fetal tissue or whatever. Well, you know, whatever makes you sleep good at night. But I'm pretty sure that you just killed a person. And so we need to be, um, we need to be involved in all areas of government so that our voice is heard on, the, on these issues. But in addition to that, Christians should also be encouraging society to value liberty and use that liberty pursuing virtue or simply just the desire to do good. I mean, virtue is such an old uh, word. People don't use it much anymore. Maybe just talk about it in terms of doing good. But we do this by forming partnerships, not with the government, because they rule by force, right? They have, they have the authority. You know, they've, they've got the guns and they, they can rule by force. Um, but by voluntary associations, right? Things like daycares and things like uh, hospitals and orphanages and agencies for adoption and, and all these kind of things that, that society struggles with and deals with, um, women's resource centers, you know, all these kind of things that, that we can participate in as believers. And that traditionally, this is an area where the church has actually done very well. Um, if you look in most cities, uh, especially here in the South, you'll have Baptist hospitals, you'll have Methodist hospitals, you'll have uh, Catholic hospitals, you'll have Catholic adoption agencies, you'll have or orphanages run by churches. As a matter of fact, in our country, uh, most of the Ivy League colleges uh, were originally formed as religious institutions. Uh, they taught theology. And so places like you know Harvard and other uh, Ivy League schools like that were originally formed by churches, Christians, uh, for higher education. And I don't think m most people realize the history of all that the church has done for the United States in, in terms of these voluntary associations, these, these partnerships that were created in order to help alleviate suffering. 
which is what really the church should be about. Things like, you know, we've got the Gospel Rescue Mission here in Biloxi. We've got food banks um, all along the coast. One closest to our church is in Long Beach. You know, there's all these kind of things, these ways that churches can participate and help to alleviate suffering and be a force for good in the community. Uh, It doesn't do us any good to complain about what the federal government's doing if we're not willing to take care of things on a local level at first or as well, or maybe in addition to. I'm not sure exactly what order that needs to come in, but there definitely needs to be something going on locally uh, as well. So Christianity is not about force, right? People talk about Christians as forcing their ideas or forcing their their Christianity on me or forcing their, you know, their laws or rules, whatever on me, uh, that kind of thing. But Christianity is really not about force. You know, we present the gospel with grace, understanding that unbelievers are slaves to their sin and that Christ is a stumbling block to them. Right. We need to understand that because we were there once too. If, if you were saved as an adult or somebody, um, you know, later in life, you know that sin probably had a pretty good grip on you. And it was a struggle to get to a point in your life where you were willing to believe and accept that uh, Christ was the Lord, um, the Son of God, who had been raised from the dead for your sins. And so it, it until you come to that point, anytime anybody talks anything about church, Christ, religion, whatever, that just that's just like grating on you, grating on your ears. You don't want to hear it. That's that sin nature welling up in you because it knows that 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 is all um, part of the truth. So basically, I just wanted to take a moment and kind of talk about this and talk about our relationship and talk not so much about the submission to authorities because that's pretty plain. I, I think the Bible's pretty plain on submission to authority. But talking about, okay, well, within the representative government we have now, within the system we have now, what can the church do? Uh, We did some podcasts a while back talking about, you know, the voice of the church. It seems like the church has lost its voice in society, and in many ways it has. You know, we're all, all these churches are now working behind the scenes trying to do little things or maybe just trying to hold their congregation together um, as smaller churches just continue to seem to get smaller. So I I think this is a way that we as churches can begin to reach out, begin to build that influence again. If if we're doing the good things in society, if we're taking food to the food banks, if we're helping to feed the poor, if we're helping uh, with the orphans and we're helping with the elderly and we're, we're doing good in our community and in society, I think that helps to boost our reputation. And I think that's really what both Paul and Peter were getting at is that there not only should there not be anything they can say against you in your belief, but also they should look at you and go, hmm, those Christians, they do a lot of good things. And it's hard hard for them to say that kind of thing when all they hear from Christians is griping and complaining. And so this is one area where I think we can make a real difference in, in, uh, in the church and in church life. If government is doing something wrong or doing something illegal? Do we have an obligation to point it out? Yeah, I think so. How we do that, I think, is is going to take some prayer and some uh, careful consideration. Um, I think running out to the streets and protesting and putting up signs and, you know, driving awareness and all the things that the American left like to do today to basically force their agenda down our throats. I don't think that serves the church very well. I don't think it does 
um, good in the long run for the church. And I think we've already seen that with the church's response to the abortion issue. Most Americans believe that abortion is wrong, but they won't stand up and say anything about it because they don't want to be associated with what they consider to be the kooks that hang out in front of the abortion clinics with their signs, um, praying and handing out pamphlets and trying to stop women from going in and ultimately, you know, some complete wackos actually killing abortion doctors. I don't think that serves us or the church very well. So I just want to kind of close with that. Um, something I was thinking about today, something that was sort of on my mind and uh, trying to maybe give my perspective on some of it. And hopefully that my perspective agrees with the biblical perspective. And if you disagree, I would love to have some conversation back and forth about it. Um, maybe maybe I am in the wrong and, and we need to kind of revisit this again sometime in the future. But with that, uh, let me go ahead and close in prayer and we'll uh, call this podcast finished. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look into your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Peter and the things that he penned in reading that first epistle over and over and over again and and beginning to see some things that I hadn't seen before. I, I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you, Father, for your word and how it teaches and instructs us, how it helps us to live lives that are virtuous, that allow us to stand upright as as people and citizens and have others look on us and say, hey, these people are doing something good. Maybe I need to find out more about that. I look forward, Lord, to your return. I pray, Father, that uh, the church would find its voice again and be able to do good. And I pray, Father, that the gospel would be furthered and that people would come to know you as their Savior. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought-provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church.